This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. I'm Samantha Rosehill. This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a new podcast for thinking with and against Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt. With Hannah Arendt. Join me and my guest as we address the most pressing political questions of our time, from love and friendship to loneliness and totalitarianism. Art Between Worlds is now available from the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Western response has for good reason caused people to re-examine the state and trajectory of U.S.-China relations. Over the past decade, that relationship has grown ever more tense, with hawkish forces rising on both sides of the Pacific. Meanwhile, China's exports have continued to boom, much of those exports being sold to the U.S., whose purchasing power has been heavily subsidized by China's purchase of U.S. treasuries in ever-growing quantities. As a result, China is not only heavily subsidizing American consumption, but also its military power. With the invasion of Ukraine, China has stood by Russia, raising concerns over what sort of precedent this could all set for a conflict in the Pacific. And so, while geopolitical and trade conflicts between the U.S. and China continue to intensify, so does the entanglement of the U.S. and Chinese economies. The contradictions, in other words, are heightening. A lot is on the line, including the capacity of the world to confront climate change if its two largest economies are in conflict, or even, in the worst-case scenario, at war. Today is part one of my two-part interview with sociologist Ho Feng Hung, the author of the book The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World, and Out Any Day Now, Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War. Today, we focus on Chinese political economic history from the 18th century to 2008, particularly why capitalism did take off in England, but did not take off in China in the late 18th or in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and then how Maoist policy laid the groundwork for China's ultimate capitalist takeoff and boom. The second and final episode will focus on the 2008 financial crisis, the deepening imbalances and heightened geopolitical conflict that resulted, and the current situation, including the impact of the crises surrounding Russia's invasion and what that all means for the U.S.-China rivalry. We at The Dig have been responding fast to the Russian invasion and the geopolitical and geoeconomic crises that have followed. I interviewed Tony Wood just after the invasion began, and then Sophie Pinkham and Nick Mulder on the war and on sanctions. In the coming weeks, I'll have new interviews on the state of the global pandemic and vaccine apartheid because that crisis continues even as new crises emerge. Then the changing state of European politics, global commodities markets and inflation, the history of Asian and Eurasian world orders that dominated before the rise of the West, and how that might all reorient our thinking about present-day questions on the rise and decline of world orders and major powers, and finally, an interview on the mid-20th century Latin American critique of the world system and the rise of dependency theory. 
to put it very bluntly, there are not many places where you can get this sort of in-depth analysis of everything. And we at The Dig only make that happen because listeners just like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. The main reason you should give us money is because listener contributions make it possible for us to post every episode of our podcast with no paywall, free to anyone and everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. That is really important to us. And yet, we will still give you a gift in exchange for your contribution. A donation of any size, and you will get our weekly newsletter by email. A contribution of $10 or more gets you a book or books, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Please take a quick moment to contribute what you can. We really do depend upon and appreciate it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's the first of my two-part interview with Ho Feng Hung, a professor in political economy at the John Hopkins University. He is the author of Protest with Chinese Characteristics, The China Boom, City on Edge, Hong Kong Under Chinese Rule, and Out Any Day Now, Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War. His writings also appear in Catalyst, Jacobin, New Left Review, and Spectre. Ho Feng Hung, welcome to The Dig. My pleasure. One key puzzle of your book is, quote, why capitalism did not emerge spontaneously in 18th century China which was the most prosperous and admired market economy in the early modern world. Let's start by reviewing how capitalism did emerge where it did in Europe and theories as to why that happened. You write that a market economy is not inherently a capitalist one, nor does it automatically lay the groundwork for a capitalist takeoff. So before we get to the history, first, let's define some basics. What is the relationship between a market economy and capitalism? In the academia and in many people's conception, uh, market and capitalism is the same thing. But uh, as uh, French historian Fernand Braudel pointed out a long time ago, market and capitalism is not only not the same thing. They are in many ways antithetical to one another, to each other, uh, because uh, they operate in different logics. Um, and in a, in a Marxian formulation, of course, that uh, he has this uh, market economy or commodity exchange uh, as uh, summarized as this CMC, you have a commodity, you have a product, and then you exchange it for money, M, and then you use the money to trade for some commodities you want, some products you want. So it is a market exchange. You produce uh, a pair of shoes and uh, trade it for money and then use the money to buy food. So it is market. But capitalism is a different thing because the capitalist activities, the motivation is uh, profit and accumulation. So as uh, Marx pointed out, it is MCM prime, meaning you have a pot of money, you trade it for some products, and then you uh, sell the products uh, for a larger sum of money. So the whole purpose of capitalism is to accumulate more and more money uh, for the sake of uh, accumulating money. So it is not, not the same. And uh, as Bradell pointed out a long time ago, that this kind of uh, profit-making activities many times require large corporation and even the help of the state and some kind of monopoly of the corporations uh, to make sure that you have the profitability that continues and enlarging 
um, and your wealth uh, is accumulating itself. So, so it is. I, I would like to have a more kind of a layman analogy, uh, which is actually the distinction between market and capitalism is the distinction between a farmer market and a kind of a giant uh, grocery store. That in the farmer market, or in the traditional type of farmer market, or in the contemporary types that we uh, visit uh, every weekend. So people are trading things with one another for money and use the money to buy things. But for a kind of a uh, gigantic corporation or gigantic grocery company like Safeway, Giant, and that kind of, so they the existence is for making profit and accumulating and reinvesting and making more profit. It is kind of a monopolistic uh, operation, which is uh, operating on a very different logic from 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 a market. Uh, so it is the basic distinction between a market and and capitalism. The state is really key here, particularly when it comes to this coercive process of resource accumulation and concentration known as primitive accumulation. How did the interstate system of early modern Europe create the conditions that caused states to support capitalist primitive accumulation? Yeah, it is uh, interesting to note that in the the market uh, situation, of course, that uh, literally after people find out that uh, money is useful, Always there are people who want to accumulate more and more of them. Uh, so this capitalist will emerge from a market economy. But the capitalist system will not automatically emerge from the market economy because um, in many world civilizations uh, before the 19th century, uh, whenever there's some uh, merchants emerging from this kind of a market economy want to accumulate wealth just for accumulating more wealth. And there will be some kind of moral sanctions or religious sanctions or, or, or political sanctions against them. And we see it uh, a lot uh, in, in the Catholic Church and in, in the Islamic religion and in Confucianist uh, China uh, because uh, many the ruler will see these kind of activities of accumulating wealth for the sake of accumulating wealth as destabilizing. They destabilize uh, the social fabric and create a lot of disruption. So there's a lot of, uh, you might say, discrimination against merchants or money-making class. And, and sometimes in some places, they're even low against these kind of uh, activities. So it is the, the what I see this kind of a pre-capitalist natural order of things. What happened in Europe is that at some point uh, that Europe got into a kind of a chronic warfare between states. And this, no uh, matter whether it's a monarch or, or it is a republic, and then these states lead uh, financing their war efforts. And, and they find out that actually the war is costly. Uh, and if you lose a war with a kind of a rifle in the international system, People will rebel and, and there are a lot of consequences. So they have to fight war and have to win war. And in order to do that, they uh, need to raise capital to finance their war and in the form of uh, bond issuance. Uh, so they sell bonds uh, to, to, to merchants, to bankers, and to finance their war efforts uh, so that they can use uh, to, per- to, to recruit uh, mercenaries or develop or buy advanced weapons and so on and so forth to, to, to win the war. So in this kind of a European situation that the calculus of the ruler change, in most other world civilization, even most part of medieval Europe, the ruler is concerned about social stability and the uh, stable political hierarchy. Uh, so they uh, discriminate against merchants' money-making class and, and, and they sanction them and they discriminate against them. But in a kind of a chronic war situation, become entrenched 
the ruler calculus changed that they are more interested in winning war, external war, rather than keeping the, the social stability internally. And then in, eventually, that uh, if you win a war, that you can have a lot of uh, booty and 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 consequence and positive uh, consequence from the war that actually enhance your. Or rulership, but if you lose a war, that you lose your head. So in kind of a European situation, that this colonial war situation urged the, the ruler uh, to establish an alliance uh, with the money-making class uh, because they are the only one who are resourceful enough to finance uh, their war efforts. So this kind of a capital-state alliance established in this uh, situation of chronic war, and then the state uh, in uh, Europe became less discriminatory against uh, this uh, money-making class and actually uh, start to facilitate their monopoly and money-making activities. So the so-called capitalist, capitalist state is born. Uh, so it is one key uh, reason why the market economy that is actually universal uh, in many places in the world, uh, in, in from the medieval to the early modern times, but it is only in Europe where market economy led to this kind of a rise and later dominance of these capitalist activities and capitalist class because of the support of the state in the kind of a chronic war situation. And why is primitive accumulation conceived of as this historically specific moment so critical for capitalist takeoff? Primitive accumulation, and, and in some translation of Marx text, is uh, called original accumulation. It is um, the, the Marx conception, of course, is that uh, in the beginning of uh, capital accumulate, capitalist accumulation activity, uh, the money-making class uh, has to resort to uh, or connect to the directly or indirectly some kind of a the raw seizures of other people's uh, means of production or wealth to f- get the first part of uh, gold, uh, so to speak. And, and, and like the enclosure is the, the example that Marx used that, that basically used the state power to appropriate peasant lands to create the first uh, uh, fortunes among many capitalists. And then after they have these first fortunes, according to Marx's original formulation or many Marxist uh, formulation or conception, uh, they use this kind of a first bulk of gold to invest in technology, machines, and uh, other things. And then it becomes a capitalist enterprise that can uh, continue to accumulate uh, through expropriation of wage labor surplus and technological innovation without this kind of a raw appropriation of other people's uh, properties and means of production. So it is the original formulation. But of course, then, and, and later studies show that this kind of a so-called primitive accumulation is not so primitive uh, in the sense that it is ongoing. Uh, even in the 21st century today, it is not like it was done uh, after the first phase of capitalism and, and then capitalism become nicer. Uh, one more recent example of this kind of a primitive accumulation or accumulation through dispossession or appropriation is the, the subprime crisis and foreclosure. After the recent financial crisis in the US and many advanced countries, that that you are indebted, uh, and uh, and you pay the loan, and 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 but uh, for some reason the 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 valuation of your home plummet, and then you cannot pay, and or you have got unemployed, you cannot pay a few months, and then the bank come and then appropriate your home, even though you have already paid a large part of your mortgage before that. So it is this kind of a the appropriation is very close to. In the early modern period, the enclosure and, and, and other examples, of course, the third world debt crisis and the structural adjustment that created a lot of uh, trouble to many developing countries in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so this kind of a 
primitive accumulation is called primitive just because how Marx formulated it, but actually it is ongoing and continuing. You write that scholarship for a long time portrayed late imperial China as being inward-looking and insular. But in fact, beginning in the 16th century, demand for Chinese silk and ceramics on the world market exploded. And by the 18th century, China was absorbing the majority of silver that European colonialists were mining in the Americas, which was an astounding thing, astounding thing to learn. And and Chinese living standards at the time at least matched those that prevailed in Western Europe. How did that influx of silver transform the Chinese economy? How was that economy then positioned within the world system? And why, given this incredible wealth, wasn't 18th century China able to undertake that primitive accumulation required to take that next big step to capitalist takeoff? That is a, an interesting chapter of history that the common perception or misperception is that China didn't lead anything from the world, and but the world lead a lot of Chinese silvers, Chinese tea, and Chinese uh, cotton textile in the, the 16th to the 18th century. That is a misperception because actually China did lead things from the world, which is silver. And uh, our perception of the early modern silver is just a currency, a measure of value. It doesn't have any use values or utility in itself, but it's a lot true uh, because uh, China was in a monetary crisis in the 15th to 16th century, uh, and it was only resolved uh, by the influx of American silver, that the American silver flowed into China via the European merchants to use the silver to purchase uh, Chinese uh, goods, uh, silk or tea, uh, through the Manila trade or through the Portuguese uh, uh, trade uh, via its uh, networks of uh, colonies connect all the way to Macau and Guangdong and later on of course the Dutch and the, the British uh, join in then to trade with China uh, uh, buy Chinese goods with American silvers and it is very important because the Chinese currency system used to rely on paper money and cotton coins and but as you know that uh, the the drawback of this paper money is that is it is easy to fake and it is very difficult to uh, maintain its values and, and when the state print too much of it and it devalued the uh, uh, plummet and people don't trust it anymore and many people fake it, so this paper money is not very reliable and then cop- copper uh, is uh, uh, is quite abundant. Uh, in terms of uh, mining resources, uh, so uh, it uh, it is not a very uh, convenient uh, measure of value for valuable goods over long distance trade or bulk goods. Uh, so silver is a, is a good um, choice uh, because it is precious enough, uh, and uh, so it is convenient to use it uh, as a kind of a measure of large value or valuable goods, uh, bulk goods uh, in long distance trade. And China used to uh, rely on Japan for the supply of silver because China has did not have a lot of silver mine in uh, within the Chinese Empire. Uh, but Japan uh, adopted a seclusion policy in the early seventeenth century, so it stopped its silver outflow to China, and then China become relying on uh, American silver uh, to be used as a major currency of this economy, and and then. Uh, uh, the Chinese economy is totally dependent on silver, and the, the state uh, levy tax uh, by uh, silver, meaning that people need to pay tax in silver, even if their income is is a copper coin, and then they need to trade the copper coin for silver before they they pay the silver tax to the government, and all long distance trade within China through silver, and then as China has no silver and Japan has stopped its uh, export of silver to. 
to China, then China at that time really dependent on American silver or silver originated from the American mines uh, as a kind of a measure of value. So the Chinese economy is very plugged into the, the world economy in this sense with this silver flow. And definitely, and and uh, you are asking why China didn't have a primitive accumulation with this kind of a civilized developed market economy is exactly what actually this kind of a lack of payment of accumulation or lack of uh, transformation of a market economy into a capitalist economy is the actually is the is, is very common. Uh, let's say that it is the the normal situation uh, across the world, because that as I said that when you have an advanced market economy, there are always merchants who uh, want to accumulate money for the sake of accumulating money and and, and become a long socks and, and running banking and things like that. If there's a few of them, then they're not very wealthy. It actually facilitates the market economy. But when they become too big, it will invoke invoke resentment and class conflicts. And also the state will start to worry that they become, these wealthy merchants become a kind of a power contender, threatening the, the rule of the monarchs and so on and so forth. So this political and social disruption, this capitalist activity created, uh, urged the state to take action, uh, to periodically confiscate their wealth and persecute them for corruption charges and all kind of, uh, reasons did happen in China, uh, and happen in the Islamic world, and happened in the South Asia, and happened in medieval Europe. That this Catholic Church, uh, sanctioned and, and actually in, in the medieval times, uh, very discriminatory against uh, merchants and bankers. So it is very normal. And and what happened in Europe is, uh, as I said, that this uh, kind of a chronic war situation created an abnormal situation in which the state has to rely on the merchants to finance their war so that the merchants uh, has a breakthrough to become dominant politically. While in China, it is the, the normal situation in which that the state, is, is it, they, they use the merchants. They think the merchants is used so far as they are a lot uh, wealthy, uh, there are a lot many of them, but if there's uh, a lot of them uh, and they become very wealthy, then the state becomes suspicious and and worried, and then they start to take action and persecute them and and confiscate their wealth. And actually, interestingly, when there's a class conflict between the merchants and and the farmers or the the, the handicraft workers uh, and ordinary citizens who complain about expensive food and and uh, hoarding activities of the rice merchants and things like that. And the state will come to the rescue, actually, that uh, they will uh, tend to side with the contending uh, workers, farmers, and poor people and ask the, or force the, the merchants to, to give away their food or lower the price. So it is a price control in the 17th, 18th century. Uh, so it is the kind of thing that the state did in China uh, in the 18th century. Uh, so as a result, if you are a merchant family, so it is a very typical pattern that if you are a merchant family, if you get uh, wealthy enough, then you will start to invest your resources into the education of your offspring and to prepare them to take the imperial examination. Because in China, you know that there's an imperial examination system. If you do well, very well in the examination, then you can become officials and bureaucrats and then start a bureaucratic career. So what happened in this kind of uh, the 17th, 18th century Chinese uh, situation is that there's a lot of very successful, wealthy uh, groups, uh, merchant groups and banking groups, but uh, some of them became too big and then persecuted by the state. For those who are not persecuted by the state, have their wealth confiscated. They are preemptively wise to 
uh, invest their fortune into the education of their uh, younger generation to prepare them for bureaucratic careers uh, by passing the exam and then become a political family. Uh, so there's a lot of this kind of successful wealthy family uh, turn from a kind of a wealthy family, merchant family into a political family and become a kind of a, a part of the state. So it is very common. So it's not like in, in Europe, you see a lot of uh, multi-generation financial and capitalist family that continue their family business of banking, for example, the Rothschild, and, and there's a lot of them uh, over generation. While in China, you have these successful uh, merchant families too and banking families too, but when, once they became very successful that they preemptively prevent the state um, getting at them and confiscating their, le- their, their, their wealth, then they will shift their reproduction of um, the elite status by shifting to a political bureaucratic career and become a political family. And so there's this key difference here that the Qing dynasty era Chinese state pursuing stability and social harmony took the demands of workers into account, whereas by contrast, European states became really eager to firmly ally with merchants to crush popular unrest whenever it emerged. And so as a result, you have the situation where commerce is not totally stigmatized and repressed in China. There is commerce. Rural gentry and state elites are actually investing a lot of money into commerce. But entrepreneurs, instead of building these powerful families established over multiple generations like the Rothschilds, instead they invest their wealth into becoming the real elites, which are the gentry and state officials. Yes, exactly. That uh, particularly, it is particularly so. Uh, it's comparatively speaking, of course. That uh, in in Europe context, we also see some paternalistic uh, ruler who try to be sympathetic to the masses against the merchants. But comparatively speaking, it's less so because they really lead uh, the financing and the monetary resources of the merchants to to finance their war. In China, is more. They are more worried about social unrest because uh, the Qing Dynasty in the 18th century, in the heyday, they were perceived as a foreign invaders or foreign occupying dynasty because the Manchu, the Manchus originate as this kind of a uh, long Han Chinese uh, semi-nomadic people. They don't originate. They even don't uh, speak and write Chinese. They have their own language uh, in terms of blood ties and cultural affinity that they are closer to the Mongols and Central Asian people. So in the 17th century, there's an invasion uh, of these Manchus, uh, uh, semi-lomad, and to crush and then finish off the Ming dynasty, which is seen as a kind of the last Han Chinese dynasty. So in the 17th century, there's a lot of Han Chinese gentry are resisting the rule of the Manchus just as they resist the Mongol rule. Um, in the in the 13th century, so throughout the 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 Qing Dynasty, that uh, the Manchu very much worry about themselves being seen as a foreign uh, invading dynasty, which is actually that the, the elite uh, military establishment of the Manchus, the Banner Army, that they even don't. They, they didn't allow the Han Chinese to participate in the military machines and, and they, they are exclusive for the Manchus, for the Mongols and, and all these nomadic people. And, and so it is a, in some sense, uh, it is true that they are the kind of a foreign occupying dynasty uh, because they are so worried about the legitimacy. So they are more, I would say, compulsive or eager to side with uh, the underdogs when there's a class conflict to portray themselves as a paternalistic uh, protector of the common people. Uh, And of course, at the same time, they are much more suspicious of the merchants and and financing class because most of them are Han Chinese, the merchants, the capitalists. So there's this kind of ethnic dimension in it. 
You also argue that the so-called agrarian origins explanations for capitalist takeoff in England, which point to the way that England's early modern agricultural revolution freed up essential, both essential capital and labor, that it fails to explain why China did not take off because China, in fact, also had undergone an agricultural revolution. So there was a rural surplus in late imperial China. It just wasn't coordinated toward urban industrialization. Yes, yes, yes. In in because in the literature of uh, social economic history in England and Europe in general, that the assumption is that there was an agricultural revolution, agricultural productivity growed uh, exponentially. So there's generally enough surplus in the countryside that is. Uh, Paving the way for uh, the rise of industrial capitalism, uh, what I'm arguing is that it is the necessary but not a sufficient condition uh, for the rise of industrial capitalism or capitalism uh, in general. Uh, because that uh, you have agricultural revolution, you have enough generally enough uh, surplus, but you still need to have an actor or agents or or some some institutions to to concentrate the surplus to create a capitalist enterprise. Uh, so this urban elite is very important. So it is the necessary condition. So what we see in China that is a consensus already that in the in the 17th and 18th century, Chinese agricultural productivity also see a very impressive growth and, and, and comparable to, to England or Europe or Western Europe. There's enough uh, agricultural surplus, but because of these dynamics of the state and their relation with the merchants, which is which has a lot of tension and then the the merchant class, the entrepreneurial class never managed to grow too big. So there's a lack of urban elite uh, capable and willing to coordinate the concentration of this rural surplus to, to become a kind of a capitalist enterprise. Uh, again, there is, I'm not saying that there's none of them, that there are some of them, but uh, they never grow as big and as uh, resilient and as powerful as in, in the case of Europe because of the the particular political situation in China in the 18th century. So this uh, agricultural revolution and abundant agricultural surplus uh, is only a necessary but not a sufficient condition for the, the emergence of capitalism in China. The next question moving forward through Chinese history is, quote, how and why Chinese state builders in the 19th and early 20th centuries failed to foster state-directed capitalism as Japan did? Every late industrializer after England, you write, confronted a more competitive world market and thus required more intensive state intervention to achieve capitalist takeoff. How did successful late industrializers like Germany, Russia, and particularly Japan foster the state-directed capitalism at this period when Western imperialism was on the rise? And then how did, how did that new world system and its continuous transformation as it developed how did it remake the conditions that each new contending developmental state, including China, was forced to navigate? Yeah, that that is uh, the, moving into the nineteenth century. That the comparison will be interesting to will be more interesting. That uh, if we compare Japan and China, that uh, one is a successful late industrializer. China was less successful. There's some 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 progress in the late century, but it's not as successful as it's Japan. Then the key is the state that uh, Japan in and China uh, had a lot of similarity, 
up to the 18th century. So there's a abandoned agricultural surplus. There's a lack of uh, urban entrepreneur, and then they take a kind of a shortcut to capitalism by using the state power to accumulate to 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 do the primitive accumulation, if you will, that in different forms. And in in one form is of course that the state use taxation to squeeze the peasants and then uh, concentrate uh, rural surplus into the hands of the state uh, through this taxation, and then use these resources to establish. Bank to offer cheap loans、um, to industrialists and then to to help、uh, to provide capital for industrialists to industrialize the country. So,、uh, so it is a Japan round and also actually German round of in- late industrialization.、Uh, the precondition is that you need to have a unified, strong state that is、uh, strong enough、uh, to pursue this kind of、uh, sometimes very brutal. Expropriation of resources from the countryside. What、uh, we see in China is that they actually try to do exactly the same thing,、uh, but fail to do it.、Uh, in the nineteenth century, there's a tax reforms in the Chinese state, and they want to increase taxation, and、uh, so on and so forth,、uh, and then use the tax money to create a kind of a government corporation or government supported corporation to import foreign technology to build steel and build railroad and all these kind of things. So they exactly doing the same thing, but China didn't manage to do it, and Japan did.、Uh, there's a lot of then contingent factors and and、uh, and less contingent factors as well. One thing is that.、Um, Japan is much smaller place, and while China, in terms of its geographical size, is much, much, much bigger, Japan is about the size of the Chinese province.、Uh, while the the Chinese state lead to coordinate、uh, concentration and、uh, of resources and 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 industrialization over the whole vast space of the empire, which is much large. It is much more difficult to do because of just the geographical vastness, and it, because of this geographical vastness, the state delegate a lot of、uh, task、uh, to the provincial local elite、uh, because the state obviously cannot oversee everything over this huge empire, continental-sized empire. So this is a lot of、uh, delegation of power to the local elite. So what happened? In the nineteenth、uh, century, China is that there is a breakup of the state. That these local elites start to have their own private army, provincial army, and to put down rebellions and and things like that. And then it is a kind of a、uh, disintegration of the state situation. That a lot like in Japan, which is much smaller geographical space, that it is it is relatively easy for the state to centralize powers and 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 do all the things.、Uh, Uh, through the central government, and and other factor is of course that the insularity of Japan is an island state, that it's、uh, compared to China, that uh, uh, in the nineteenth century, that the Western imperialist force is very interested in in dividing the resources、uh, of China among themselves, the British and then the French and then Germans and and Russia and everybody else. And they are in the nineteenth century that、uh, they are busy in in trying to craft out their own spheres of influence in China, so that they don't have enough、uh, energy and attention to Japan. So Japan、uh, is only、uh, have a, a relation with a commercial relation with with with、uh, with the U.S. at the time in the nineteenth century. But at that time, U.S. population and economic center of gravity still very much in the eastern east coast and and start to move to the west and then start to look at Pacific. But、uh, so Jap- at that time, U.S. is a kind of a young Pacific power, so it didn't、uh, have this kind of a 
power and and intention or 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 desire to to colonize Japan, so to speak, so establish trade relations. So Japan has this briefing space, and as other European powers are busy dividing up China, so it is the kind of a uh, geographical. Factors and this contingent factor of geopolitics of the nineteenth century that um, lead to the failure of the Chinese state in pursuing a kind of a late industrialization strategy like uh, Japan and Germany in, in around the same time. And and that disorder, of course, continued for decade after decade through the wars of the Republican period up until nineteen forty nine, when Mao declared the People's Republic of China, and the reason. It was impossible to achieve capitalist takeoff during the civil wars and foreign wars with Japan and yeah, world yeah. wars of the Republican period is yeah. not a mystery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> After Japan took off, that uh, Japan itself became an imperial power and then uh, jumped into the game of uh, inter-imperial uh, competition for China resources. So China is busy fending off uh, this kind of invasion or encroachment uh, for, for a whole century until the, the CCP came to power and then for the first time in a century they created a unified uh, the strong central state that is the, when the industrial takeoff take off, uh, can really happen. Mao and the rise of the CCP change everything. You write that it, quote, the rural and urban industrial developments in the Mao period laid the foundation for the capitalist boom in the 1980s. Why did primitive accumulation succeed under Mao? And then what does it mean that it was, quote, carried out in the name of socialism? What what does it mean, in other words, that actually existing socialism, as Emmanuel Wallerstein argued, never operated outside of the capitalist world system? Yeah, in the kind of a Wallersteinian formulation that I agree is that a socialism or socialist state should be governing with promoting equality as the first priority. But in many actually existing socialist states from the Soviet Union to Eastern Europe to communist China after 1949, uh, equality is part of it, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, they try to promote equality either uh, as a kind of part of propaganda or some actual thing that they do. But the first priority is really not equality. The first priority is accumulation and growth. Actually, that uh, sort of rapid industrialization is the first priority, definitely. In pursuing this, uh, in Soviet Union and as in the communist China in the 50s and 60s, uh, this kind of a priority or imperative of rapid industrialization and growth uh, trump every other consideration. What I uh, argue is that, uh, as many Chinese scholars also find out, that what Mao uh, pursue is a kind of a very extreme form of state-led industrialization, use the state power to extract resources, agricultural surface resources, from the countryside uh, and to concentrate it into urban enterprise, uh, that is state-owned enterprise at the time, uh, to to pursue the rapid expansion of the industrial urban sectors, from steel mill to to infrastructures and all that kind of industrial uh, activities. Uh, so it is uh, in the process. It actually enlarged the inequality between the, the, the rural and urban because it is a kind of a very typical model of uh, exporting the countryside to promote the growth of urban industrial sectors. Of course, that they. Uh, part of the deal is that they also uh, create in create equality uh, or, or try to equalize uh, incomes and 
and status within the countryside and within the, the city, but the inequality between urban and uh, rural sectors uh, keep enlarging because of this kind of uh, heavy industrialization, rapid industrialization model. So it is why, in this sense, that it's this state socialist model is not exactly the, uh, a pure socialism, and, and in the end, it is... Uh, it's imperative as the, the, the rapid accumulation of uh, capital, but it is not private capital, but the state capital and, and rapid industrialization. So it is an extreme form of uh, state-led industrialization, like what the German and Japan did successfully in the 19th century, but in a kind of much tougher intellectual environment in the mid-20th century, they uh, pursue a much more extreme forms, a much more rapid kind of uh, industrialization through this kind of state uh, direct extraction of uh, rural surface to concentrate into the urban industrial sector. A key Maoist policy that laid the groundwork for the later capitalist boom was that there was this state squeezing of the countryside to fuel rapid industrialization of state-owned enterprises that you just discussed, but there was also a compensation of the peasants by providing substantial health care, other welfare policies that made the rural population a healthy and educated one. How was that labor pool created? And then how in the 90s was that surplus released into the booming coastal industrial export economy? Yes. Well, what is interesting and, and the key distinction between the Soviet Union model of rapid state-led industrialization and the Chinese one is that Stalin basically destroyed the peasantries and, and, and promote uh, urbanization of the population. And and while in China, they kept the uh, rural population in the countryside, the peasant economy was destroyed, replaced by the uh, people's commute system, which is collective farm like in the Soviet Union, but they kept the rural population there. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, for many, many reasons, because they worry about this kind of uh, rural to urban migration will create unemployment and hence uh, uh, instability in the city. So they, they rather have the, the peasants uh, stay uh, or the farmers or the rural population stay in the countryside. At the same time, in exchange for this kind of a very draconian squeeze of the countryside uh, through this kind of state procurement of agricultural products and taxing system, they also invest a lot in uh, uh, basic education, eradication of uh, illiteracy, and also that uh, socialized medicines in the countryside, that is the, the very famous uh, barefoot doctors, and, and also the mass vaccination program that eradicate a lot of contagious disease in the countryside. And the literacy rate of the Chinese countryside is among the highest in the developing world in the mild period. So they, they have this kind of a basic uh, service, uh, education uh, provided to the countryside. Um, and and it created a large pool of rural surplus labor uh, that is uh, not only large in number but also uh, literate and healthy. Uh, so it laid the groundwork for the capitalist private capitalist takeoff uh, in the eighties and later. Because uh, what is interesting about uh, uh, the Chinese uh, shift to export oriented uh, industry uh, uh, plugging after it plugged into the global economy. Uh, in the 1980s and 90s is that uh, originally that people didn't expect uh, that much uh, China as a huge exporter because uh, now it seems that it's easy. You you, you offshore uh, American or European or Japanese companies, uh, factories to China and then find a cheap labor and manufacture things. Uh, but 
back in the eighties and nineties, and people didn't have much confidence about whether it will work in China because a lot of companies have done offshoring in in South Asia, in Southeast Asia, and many other places. What they usually encounter is that. Uh, Uh, yes, there's a lot of cheap labors from the countryside, but it is not necessarily uh, disciplined uh, and healthy and and literate and 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 efficient labor. So it take a lot of time to train them to get used to the factory works and uh, and read instructions and know what to do and 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 without being sick. Uh, because like uh, in in many developing countries, if you establish a country uh, establish the factories using a lot of rural workers, the common thing is that there will be periodic. TB outbreak and an outbreak of all kind of disease that disrupt production. So it is actually challenging. But in China, that uh, after they shift to this model of uh, the export oriented growth, allowing or in- inviting foreign uh, industrial capital to establish factory in the coastal area and then absorb the rural surplus labor, that uh, very soon they find out that the labor is not only large in number. They're not only low cost, but also they are uh, healthier and uh, more literate than rural uh, migrant labor in many other developing countries. So it is uh, the kind of a condition that have the mild period of rural development to thank. And of course, then then now the the question is that after the one-child policy, this they seem to be running out of uh, the, this labor. The young population in the countryside is declining, and also after the market reform in the nineteen eighties, that uh, the government investment in education and healthcare uh, in the countryside stopped growth and and all these kind of advancements uh, achieved in the mild period seems to be reversed and and so now but it is another phase of development now but uh, the mild period uh, creation of a healthy literate uh, uh, rural surplus labor is laying the groundwork for the later export oriented industrialization based on rural uh, the low cost labor This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's b-i-t dot l-y slash digjacobin, all in lowercase. You write, quote, Because the Maoist state relied almost solely on surplus extracted from the countryside for the primitive accumulation process and refused to rely on external borrowing, as many other socialist and developing countries did in the 1970s, the Chinese state was much less burdened with external liabilities, while many other developing countries fell prey to dictation by their creditors when the international debt crisis hit in the 1980s. 
As Isabella Weber shows in her recent book, China nonetheless only narrowly dodged imposing a form of shock therapy that would have wrecked its economy the way that post-Soviet Russia's economy was wrecked. How important was Maoist China's self-sufficiency as a necessary, if not sufficient, condition for capitalist takeoff? Yes, that that is very interesting that that you mentioned Weber's book that uh, she did a great job in showing that China uh, literally dodged a kind of a self-inflicted structural adjustment policy of free market or or reform. Uh, so it's one part of it. The other part of it, actually, in across the developing world, many uh, state elite and academic also want to dodge a kind of a free market reform and 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 big boom kind of uh, reform and structural adjustment policy. But even though they dodge it in terms of their internal intellectual debate, they don't want to do it. They have to do it because of the debt crisis and the dictation of uh, the IMF, World Bank, that because. Simply, they the the, the government uh, just so in depth that they has to avoid their default by borrowing from IMF, and then IMF will dictate them and force them to adopt the structural adjustment reform. So that uh, the 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 one part of the puzzle that Weber answered uh, uh, brilliantly is that trying to avoid a self-inflicted and and dodge a self-inflicted structural adjustment reform. The other part of the puzzle that we need to answer is that why China escaped the kind of a structural adjustment reform and big boom uh, free market reform uh, dictated by the IMF. And it again, they need to trace back to the Mao period that uh, uh, Mao refused to borrow from the international financial market to speed up the growth that many developing countries and actually many socialist countries, Eastern European countries did. Uh, in the 1970s, because in the 1970s, there was a um, petrodollar bomb that interest rate is very, very low, and actually it looks silly not to borrow money from intellectual intellectual financier. So which is what Brazil did, it is what a lot of African countries did, Southeast Asian countries did, and Poland and Yugoslavia also borrow a lot from the international markets uh, because the interest rate is so low that the idea is that you borrow in this low interest rate. Uh, and then you have uh, to stimulate a growth. Uh, if the growth rate is higher than the interest of the loan, uh, then you can uh, repay the loan without any problem. But still, you can you can pocket a lot of uh, gain of the of the growth. So it seemed to be silly, lot to borrow uh, in the nineteen seventies. Uh, but for all kinds of reasons, that the Mao, one part of the reason is the Mao ideology of self reliance. We need to self exploit to, to come up with resources to grow rather than borrowing from outside. But another re- reason is of course that this after Nixon. Uh, visited China in the 1970s that a lot of um, U.S. allies uh, in the region, mostly uh, Japan, are very happy to provide uh, economic assistance to China. So China didn't need to borrow uh, from the international financial market like Poland and Yugoslavia and many developing countries did. So when the Paul Volcker, um, for all kinds of reasons, raised the interest rate of the U.S. dollar uh, in the early 1980s under Reagan uh, to 20%. So many uh, loans that is borrowed on moderate or even very low interest rates suddenly uh, has a kind of, a, because they are adjustable variable interest rates. So when the market uh, interest rate of uh, the U.S. dollar increased, that all this loan interest rate also increased. So that many uh, developing countries and Eastern European countries, mostly both Poland, uh, suddenly find themselves in a very difficult situation when the interest rate suddenly 
skyrocket, and then and then it was the origin of the debt crisis, and then many of these developing countries and socialist countries in Eastern Europe were really bankrupt, and then need to default, and then they uh, lead to ask the help of the IMF and the rest in history that uh, the IMF helped to bail them out with the condition that they adopt this kind of a radical market reform, and China avoid that because of this. Uh, 1970s situation or stubbornness, we may say, of the Mao not to borrow uh, from the international market. So in the 1980s, China escaped from this debt crisis and didn't need to listen to IMF. Uh, so it avoided uh, imposed structural adjustment program and then uh, China can engineer market reform with, in a kind of a piecemeal faction and trial and error faction uh, and, and the state maintain its dominance and maintain the full autonomy of the financial sector in China. Uh, so it is another factor that explains that China, uh, the China boom and the China rapid growth in the 1980s and 90s, while much of the other uh, Eastern European countries and developing countries are, are troubled by the debt crisis. As we've discussed, Maoist China squeezed the countryside to industrialize, and the result was these these massive state-owned enterprises, or SOEs. To what extent did state-owned enterprises help create and propel China's boom? And to what degree, by contrast, has their inefficiency, debt load, and the role they've played in creating a CCP-affiliated parasitic elite, to what extent has it instead been more of a burden to that boom? Because you write, quote, some may argue that given the weight of fixed asset investment in GDP, undertaken mostly by SOEs and local governments, the China boom is at least as much driven by the state sector as by the private sector. But most of the fixed asset investment in the Chinese economy has been financed by state bank lending, and a large portion of the liquidity in the banking system originates from a sterilization process in which private exporters surrender their foreign exchange earnings to state banks in exchange for an equivalent amount of renminbi issued by the People's Bank of China, China's central bank. So if the Chinese state's capital has overwhelmingly come from exports, why are the SOEs important, historically speaking? What, What role have they played and how should we think about the relationship between the rise of the export economy and the SOEs created under Mao? Definitely. That the SOE is important in the sense that a lot of infrastructures, heavy industries, uh, still like steel mills and, and coal plants uh, and the, the airports and railroad and high-speed rail definitely are constructed and maintained by the state enterprise and telecommunication as well, the telecommunication network. So that um, uh, it is a famous uh, India-China comparison that India has a lot of potential of growth and, and, and advantage, but the Indian uh, infrastructure is less developed than China because China has a centralized system and a state-owned enterprise system that, that oh, for decades since Mao to post-Mao period, they have been relying on this state-owned enterprise and, and, and or local governments or, or central uh, the government units uh, like the, the Ministry of Railroad. Uh, to construct these kind of infrastructures and and create uh, enough uh, power plants and uh, to generate enough electricity and then create um, uh, construct steel mill uh, to create enough uh, steel products uh, to to fill the economy. Uh, so this state-owned enterprise is very important in terms of uh, providing infrastructures and and this kind of uh, investment and heavy industries and these kind of uh, sectors. On the one hand, of course, that is uh, has been 
uh, divide among the party elites. Uh, it is very uh, well known that uh, in the Central Committee or Politburo of the Communist Party, that uh, you can identify these uh, different individual members of the the top echelons of the elites. Uh, each of them will uh, seize uh, one particular sectors uh, as their turf, as their kind of a, a, a fiefdom. That that and they staff uh, the whole sectors like. For example, energy sector, oil sectors, and and gem mineral sector sectors, and uh, electricity sector. They started this kind of fiefdom with their own relatives and families and and underlings, and and so it is. It is this kind of a division of these state state sectors among the elites. So it's become a kind of a. Uh, you might say corrupt or kind of a very oligarchic uh, structures, and these their own enterprises actually that they're a lot financed directly by the fiscal resources of the state. Largely, they are financed by loan created by the state banks. And, and China has marketized a lot of sectors, but its uh, financial sector that the CCP jealously guarding the state control of the financial sector by the letting state bank continue their dominance in the economy uh, because the CCP see this kind of flow of credit as a kind of a the most important lever that it has to direct the economy and maintain the CCP control of uh, economic development and the elite, then the export export sector is connected to this state own enterprise the sector that is focused on heavy industries and and infrastructure constructions and uh, through the loan mechanism as you described uh, summarized uh, nicely that is. Uh, China has a closed uh, capital account, then its currency is not freely convertible. So if you are export enterprise, mostly private or foreign enterprise, and you earn the foreign currency, mostly the U.S. dollar, and then you cannot keep the U.S. dollar yourself or, or, or keep it in an offshore account and anything like that, you need to surrender it to the central bank of China. And then the central bank convert the U.S. dollar you surrender with equivalent amount of local currency, which is the yuan or the renminbi, and then you use the yuan uh, to pay for the salary of your employees and do investment or all kind of thing. So this kind of a, a renminbi creation, renminbi or yuan creation, local currency creation, backed by the inflow of foreign exchange, mostly in the U.S. dollar, uh, uh, mostly via the export sector, is the kind of a liquidity creation mechanism that uh, many of these liquidity turn out to be to be bank loans. Uh, because if, if your enterprise, you surrender your U.S. dollar, you get a lot of uh, yuan in return, and, and then you will save it in account, and then the bank in turn use that money to create loans. Uh, uh, for other enterprises in invest and then because the state banks have been dominated by the CCP and then what happened is that this uh, literature is showing that actually it is very difficult for private enterprise to get financing from state bank so this state bank has a discriminatory policy to to be more lenient in uh, issuing loans to state-owned enterprises so this or local government or government units for one reason, because they think that, that this, this, this enterprise, they borrow that they have the backing of the government, so they won't default, while private company can default. So it is safer to uh, lend to this uh, government unit. So what happened is that this kind of a huge expansion of uh, foreign exchange reserve in China, uh, thanks to the export sector mostly, uh, create a commensurate, commensurate expansion of uh, liquidity in local currency that became the local currency loans. 
and then these loans uh, is uh, turn out to be the state bank loans to local government and uh, state enterprise, and then they after they get the loans, they they need to use them. Uh, mostly they use them for constructing more stuff. Uh, keep expanding the airports and keep adding lines to the subway system and building new lines of the railroad system and and building more steel mill, building more coal plants. Uh, so that, that you see this kind of a uh, excessive expansion of infrastructures and heavy industries, and 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 after two thousand, actually beginning in the nineteen nineties, that the Chinese government official already talk about this issue of excess capacity. Uh, in the private Xbox sector, they don't talk about excess capacity because there's a huge demand in the world economy to absorb this kind of consumer goods created by by the Chinese export sector. But in the uh, state-owned enterprise, local government dominated uh, heavy industries and infrastructures, and and they uh, create a lot of excessive capacity. That meaning that that you are building things that you know that it is not going to be profitable after it is built. For example, that after you have an airport, you have a second airport in a fairly nearby city and about the same size, and then you you continue to keep expanding the airports. You even the high speed rail that, that there's a lot of praise about the high speed rail, and there's a lot of uh, amazing thing about the high speed rail system. But uh, the fact is that they they borrowed too much money, so they keep building uh, lines. That some lines are profitable, but a lot of lines are connecting small cities. That is actually not many people ride on them, and if you charge in the market price, and nobody will will pay, so it is not going to be profitable. And then steel and coal plants, and so there's excessive capacity, and it create a typical. Uh, in the Marxian literature, it is the over-accumulation issues that uh, then it become a problem because uh, these uh, enterprise and units, they borrowed uh, to build this stuff, but they end up, they're a lot profitable. So uh, they will have trouble repaying their loans and, and, and actually one loan state sector, but actually it is also connected to the state in many ways. Uh, it is the, the sector that get a lot of attention lately. It is the... Uh, Real estate, yes, and they they are private. Uh, they are private enterprise, but they are related to the state because this real estate, they cannot get land without the active collaboration of the local government, and the local government generate revenue by selling lands uh, to these uh, real estate enterprises, uh, and 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 when the uh, valuation of the final product, that is the apartment, going up, then then the local government can keep increasing their revenue by selling more and more expensive land to this real estate. So this real estate machine is actually connected to the local government revenue machine, and the same dynamics that is they keep borrowing from the state bank, and the state bank is very lax and lenient in in lending money to these units, and then. Uh, they have enough. They have too many apartments that they cannot sell, and then, then, but they still need to repay the loan. At some point, that there will be a moment of reckoning, that uh, that they either need to default the loan, or find some other means to come up with the cash. But it is very difficult. So now China is in a kind of a ticking time bomb of this big um, uh, loan uh, debt crisis, internal debt crisis, not external debt crisis. We'll get more into these imbalances and contradictions and how they're playing out today. In, in greater detail later on. But first, a, a, a little more history, because fascinatingly, one of the most fascinating things about your book is that it, it wasn't just Mao-era primitive accumulation that laid the groundwork for the capitalist boom. It was also capital from Japan and the Four Tigers, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. These developmental states that were successful precisely because they operated under the U.S. Cold War-era security umbrella. And that's what financed played such a big role in financing China's takeoff. You write, quote, 
China's capitalist boom is tantamount to an explosion ignited by the mixing of the Maoist legacies and East Asian capitalism, each developed separately on opposing sides of the Cold War in Asia. And that capital, in turn, had even deeper roots in coastal entrepreneurial families who had departed Qing-era China to make their fortunes in European colonial outposts. How did that capital find its way from find its way from Qing-era coastal China, then to American Cold War allies in Asia, and then finally to financing China's export boom? It's quite a story. Yeah, that definitely. That is this um, Chinese diaspora that uh, many historians has pointed out. Actually, that in the nineteen eighties, when China opened up, of course, China has uh, good infrastructures and and um, the, as I said, the, the healthy and literate workforce from the countryside. But without the entrepreneurs to absorb them, uh, to make use of them, to turn it into export industries, that these uh, kind of uh, advantages on and and good conditions in in China, Frank and the Mao period would not work. Uh, so uh, so first of all, you need to have this entrepreneur. And what happened is that in nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, when China start to open up, uh, a lot of overseas Chinese uh, from Hong Kong mostly, from Taiwan and from the Southeast Asia. On top of, uh, of course, this long Chinese capitalists in from South Korea and Japan uh, moved to the coastal area of China to uh, mobilize the the good infrastructures and the healthy and literary workforce to to run successful export oriented industries. And these entrepreneurs, they have generations and decades of experience of manufacturing stuff for the, the U.S. and European markets. Uh, so they know what kind of Christmas tree they like, and what kind of electronics that will sell, and what kind of garments that will will be regarded as fashionable. So China actually skipped this kind of a learning process. Uh, they 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 have the this kind of Chinese diaspora and Japanese and Korean capital. They they not only have the money and and capital, but also they are well connected to the market of the consumption market. So that China is uh, lucky to situate in this neighborhood, and and compared to. The Soviet Union and and Eastern Europe and and mostly the Soviet Union when they open up that uh, there's not such a kind of a diaspora capital list ready to go in to 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 take advantage of the resources to make things in in the end that all these resources are taken up by the oligarchs and 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 the corrupt officials and and the rest is history. But in in China that when it opened up there's already a large group of Chinese diaspora capital and Japanese and Korean capital that has accumulated and successful because of the particular uh, geopolitics of the Cold War that uh, you mentioned also, that during the height of the Cold War, East Asia is regarded by the U.S. as a very vulnerable place fallen to communist cap- uh, communism, that you can look at uh, South Korea is always under threat from North Korea and Taiwan being threatened by taking over by communist China in the Cold War and let alone Hong Kong and even Singapore it is very close um, that Singapore became a kind of a Cuba of Southeast Asia because you look at the history of Singapore after independence that is the the People Action Party used to be a left-wing party and, and until that uh, Lee Kuan Yew collaborated with the US and UK intelligence to engineer a coup to round up and arrested all the left-wing activists in his own party and then turned Singapore into a uh, social democratic state without a democracy and also uh, uh, the kind of bastion of uh, of the Cold War. So that this all these places are very vulnerable from a U.S. perspective and definitely the Korean War and the Vietnam War are the, actually the, the, the hot wars rather than Cold War 
at the height of the Cold War. So, so U.S. policy. The coup, the coup in the coup in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, that the coup in Indonesia and also Malaysia and Thailand and Philippines. You see all these uh, communist guerrilla in the countryside very active. So U.S. policy toward this kind of a showcase or bastions of uh, capitalist islands uh, from from Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan, and South Korea, and let alone Japan is very generous um, in terms of opening U.S. market to their consumer products that never happened to manufacturers to Latin America, Africa, and other places, same as Europe. So that they this kind of geopolitical condition. Uh, create a kind of a very favorable environment for these capitalists uh, uh, to grow in these capitalist islands during the Cold War period, uh, when China opened up, then these uh, entrepreneurs are eager and ready to go into China to take advantage of the the advantages of the Chinese labor and Chinese infrastructures. Prior to the China boom, East Asia's booming export economy was structured as a so-called flying geese formation. The the four tigers produced components that were assembled in Japan, which then manufactured and exported the highest value added goods. So in this flying geese formation, picture Japan at the head of the formation and the four tigers behind. What did it mean for the Asian and world economy for that flying geese formation to get transformed into a sinocentric so-called panda circle? Yes, definitely. That in the seventies, sixties, seventies, up to eighties, that uh, there was this kind of a Im- uh, image of a flying geese, in which the whole formation fly forward, but they maintain a stable hierarchy uh, between the leading geese and the geese that uh, follow the lead of the leading goose. Uh, Japan is the leading goose at the time that uh, it always uh, manufacturing the most high value, highest value added products, most sophisticated profitable product. Once Japan move up a leg stage to an even higher uh, value added product, then the less fashionable, less profitable product is outsourced to the leg skis, Taiwan, South Korea, and so on and so forth. So uh, the whole formation move upward and or forward, uh, but uh, the hierarchy of Japan and the Four Tigers and then Southeast Asia maintained until the 1980s and 1990s when China entered the picture because China is so big and so resourceful and has a huge internal market as well. So it attracts not only the low um, value-added industries uh, from the the geese, but also high value added industry also were attracted to outsource to China. So in the end, China absorbed everything uh, from electronics to computers to, of course, uh, very famously iPhone and, and the productions uh, and to low cost products and, and, and garment, Christmas trees and, and, and Halloween customs and uh, things like that. Uh, so that in, in the 1990s that uh, uh, there's an economist article called a panda break the formation. Meaning that uh, there's a cartoon come with it. It's very funny that that the panda basically uh, <laughs> uh, rip apart the whole fine geese formation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it, because China is so big, so it absorbs everything, and then it becomes a sinocentric production networks. And all uh, uh, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and Southeast Asia that they all outsource their capital. Uh, manufacturing activities to 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 China and the capitalists in those places focus on finance, real estate speculation, and there's some super high value added 
manufacturing uh, still maintain in those places. Uh, one of it that that get a lot of attention is this uh, manufacturing of uh, high speed microchips. Uh, so there's a kind of a uh, especially in Taiwan. In Taiwan and South Korea as well, so Samsung okay. and the Taiwan one is uh, neck to neck, and so there's a kind of a con- export control we dreamed uh, inherited from the Cold War that trying to find it very difficult to bypass, and actually it is a very big gap to overcome. So that 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 high tech component part is still manufacturing in many of these uh, more developed economy, but. Besides that, and many other uh, high tech, from drones to iPhone to to the electric car and everything else, and so already outsourced to China. So it is a Sino-centric networks, and the, the the bulk of the production are done in in China. And then the satellite or the other states or other economies surrounding China provide China or provide the Chinese production with uh, components, uh, the most sophisticated high-tech components, and natural resources, and financing sometimes. uh, uh, A lot of uh, Chinese enterprises get financing, for example, through the banks in Hong Kong, and so on and so forth. So it is a Sinocentric network, and it's centered on China. Of course, that uh, the more recent... uh, Trade war and everything else is trying is 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 about to uh, transform that, but uh, it is still unknown what what it is transforming into. A key premise of your book is that of the China boom is that quote, capitalism in any particular country is not fundamentally different from capitalism elsewhere. The underlying principle and basic dynamics of capitalism as an economic system are universal, though capitalism is always enmeshed in historically and nationally specific sociopolitical structures that enable the release of its productive forces at some times and fetter its reproduction at other times. Why doesn't China represent a unique party-state capitalism, as, as some argue, and what, what are the stakes of this point, that there is no Chinese capitalism per se while there is a history of capitalism in China. So there's a um, similarity between the capitalism in China and uh, difference as well, definitely. That the similarity is that is the profit motivation and the imperative accumulation drive the system in today's China as in today United States and is today Japan and many other places. The dominant uh, imperative of of economic activities is definitely to accumulate capital, to to reinvest, to make profits. And uh, also, capitalism in China is very common to other places around the world in the sense that uh, uh, commodification of means of livelihood is very complete. And and if you are living in China, as in living in the US, as in living in Germany or Japan, that you need to purchase uh, most of your daily uh, necessity and subsistence or means of livelihood from the market, and in fact, that in that regard, and and you need to sell and you need to sell your labor to get the money to buy that stuff. And in in that regard, actually, interestingly, China uh, com- the com- marketization of some daily necessity is even higher than most European countries. You look at the private spending on total national healthcare costs that in Europe and in Japan and South Korea that it is very socialized and then there's a lot of uh, healthcare expense is covered by government spending uh, most typically more than 60% and even 70% 80% of the total national healthcare spending is covered by government spending and the rest is covered by private spending but uh, two big Economies there now with a very very low percentage of public spending on healthcare. It is the United States and China. 
that uh, that the healthcare system that rely on private out-of-pocket spending uh, more than government spending uh, as a percentage of total national spending. So, so, so in that regard, then China is as marketized as uh, in, in the U.S. It's very capitalistic. There's a lot of profit-making going on uh, among hospitals and healthcare provider in China as in the U.S., more than in the healthcare system in, in U.K. or Europe or Japan. So in, in this regard, that this capitalist system is really universal. It's the same in China as in other places. But at the same time, this capitalist system uh, lead to negotiate with um, different political systems that they are embedded in. In the case of China, of course, is the party state. And then the party state, uh, communist party state, the imperative is to stay in power to maintain and expand its power. So it is all state want to do it, and parties, they, uh, the Communist Party, they do it in a very specialized way and with this kind of uh, infiltration and this, their party state, uh, their party cell in all kind of units. So that this capitalist uh, system in China is existing not in a vacuum, but in a kind of a, this particular party state political context that uh, it doesn't make China long capitalist and it is still capitalist system, but it is a kind of a capitalist activities and capitalist system in a, in a quite a unique environment that is the dominance and powerful party states in, in in China. It is not exactly the only one unique that people point to already that uh, the similar formations uh, is already emerging in other places like Vietnam. But it is a different story. But that so the capitalist system itself is 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 has its universality, but it exists in a very uh, relatively unique political environment that the capitalist system need to negotiate with all the time. This was part one of my two-part interview with Ho Feng Hung, a professor in political economy at the John Hopkins University. He is the author of many books, including Protest with Chinese Characteristics, The China Boom, City on Edge, Hong Kong Under Chinese Rule, and Out Any Moment Now, Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War. His writings also appear in Catalyst, Jacobin, New Left Review, and Spectre. My next episode with Ho Feng Hung will focus on the 2008 financial crisis, the deepening imbalances and heightened geopolitical conflict that resulted, and the current situation, including the impact of the crises surrounding Russia's invasion and what that all means for the U.S.-China rivalry. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, if the emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews and five-star ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling people you know in real life or that you know really well on the internet, whatever, people that you know about the podcast, why you like it, why they would like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.